Father, as we've sang in worship, you're the creator of the universe. You're the creator of our souls. Lord, we look at our fingerprint and we know it's uniquely designed by you. You think towards us more than the sand of the sea. Your thoughts are to give us a future and a hope. You love each person, each one of us. You know what we're thinking about, our joys and our sorrows. Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in a very tangible and practical way to lead us and guide us in your word. We know that you honor your word above even your name, that your word is going to endure for all of eternity. So would you impact our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. God puts the sun and the moon on pause. He says, stop. He gives Joshua and an extended day. If you remember the events leading up to chapter 10 is Joshua has just been hoodwinked. We looked at that three weeks ago, three Sundays ago. He was deceived. The Gibeonites, who are a neighboring city to Ai, the next city to be destroyed, pretended to be foreigners. And they came and worked a scheme, a Ponzi scheme, if you would, of deception to where the Israelites entered into this covenant, this agreement with the Gibeonites to live in peace with them, only to find out that they'd been tricked, that they had been deceived. And chapter 10 really then is the repercussions of that commitment without seeking the Lord. And we'll find as Israel owned their mistakes and relied upon the Lord, that God shows up in an amazing way. If there's one big idea, one thought that I hope that we grasp this morning and we remember, it's as we stop that sin train, we stop that flow of mistakes and we own up to our responsibility and rely upon the Lord, God will be faithful even when we're faithless and he'll work in a powerful way. So verse 1 of chapter 10 Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he'd done to Jericho and its kings, so he'd done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they were greatly afraid, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty." We're introduced to the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, and he's freaked out because he's seen the destruction of Jericho and of Ai, but also Gibeon is now at peace with Israel. They're on this same team. And Gibeon is a mighty city. It wasn't a small city like Ai. It's compared to the royal city. So now what we're going to find is there's going to be an alliance of five kings that come together to fight Israel. In verse 3, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Derbai, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all of their enemies, and camped before Gideon and made war against it. Joshua wouldn't be in this exact situation where they felt this threatened if there wasn't peace with the Gibeonites. And he never intended to have that peace with the Gibeonites. So the whole situation that he's in is because of the mistake that he made of not seeking God's counsel. Ever been there? You're like, I'm in this valley because of my decisions. 
because I didn't put the Lord first and seek this counsel. Well, the Gibeonites, they send a quick text message in verse six to Joshua, check it out. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not forsake your servant, come up to us quickly, save us and help us. For all of the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. They know, even though they're mighty, there's no way they can stand against these five kings. Also, they know Israel would be tempted at this point to not honor their contract to stand with the Gibeonites. This is excess baggage that they never wanted, that they never intended. This is a very convenient time for Israel to say, all right, why don't you guys just fight this battle on your own? So they're asking for the help of Joshua. Notice what Joshua does in verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all of the people of war with him, and all of the mighty men of valor. Joshua is going to honor this covenant that he made before God, that he swore before God, even though he had been deceived. He doesn't stop and think about it. He doesn't overanalyze it. He immediately gets this message that Gibeon is under attack, and they go for it. And they march from Gilgal, and they start heading down to Gibeon. Maybe you find yourself in a similar situation. Remember what we talked about is that marriage is a covenant before God. Whether you realize it or not, you you committed before the Lord. And maybe you're saying, you know, I was hoodwinked. I was deceived. This person claimed to be a believer and loved the Lord. And it was very clear that they don't love the Lord. And you're thinking, maybe I'll just jump ship in this relationship. I'll I'll give up on, on this marriage. You can relate to Joshua. And if you honor the covenant and the commitment that you made before the Lord then I believe and trust that God's going to work in a powerful way. And it may not be marriage, but it may be some other area of your life where you say, you know, I've made mistakes. And our tendency when we make mistakes is we just want to throw in the towel. We say it's too late. The mistakes are too great. And when we own up to those mistakes and we say, I'm not going to continue in this path of sinful decision, but I'm going to trust the Lord then God works. And so Joshua does that here. He's a man of honor. He's a man of integrity. He honors his commitment and covenant before the Lord. And verse eight, and the Lord spoke to Joshua. God speaks at the perfect time. Don't you love that? So many thoughts going through Joshua's mind as he would be marching to Gibeon and the Lord speaks to him. Sometimes we initiate communication and conversation with God And sometimes he initiates conversation with us. And that's what we find here. God knows Joshua's heart. He knows he needs to hear from the Lord. And this is what God says. Do not fear them, for I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Anytime you hear God say, don't be afraid to a group of people or an individual person, it's because they're afraid. Joshua's afraid. God doesn't waste words. He's coming against five kings and their armies that have gathered together. And the Lord says, I don't want you living in fear. I don't want you walking in fear. And my promises for you are still true. I'm going to defeat the enemies. The mistake of Joshua and the elders, their failures did not cancel out the promise of God in their life. I think we need to hear that this morning. Because a lot of times we think that our failure and our mistake all of a sudden cancels out God's promises in our lives. And when we're faithless, God remains faithful. In Romans 11, verse 29, it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
That means that God put a calling and he gave gifts into your life. And when you mess up, when you fall short, when you sin, when we're less than what we should be, God doesn't go, here, give me those gifts back. Here, give me that, give me that calling back. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Aren't you thankful for that? We learned that from Jonah's life. Jonah was actually the greatest evangelist in all of history. And he had a terrible attitude about it. He went to Nineveh and this giant city of Assyrians all repent. But how did he begin? I don't want to go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction that God was calling him because the Ninevites were Israel's enemies. He didn't want to see the love of God go to his enemies. You know the story. He's swallowed by the great fish. The great fish has an urge to regurge. There it is. And as soon as he's right with God, what does God say to Jonah? Go back to Nineveh. You need to go to Nineveh. The calling upon Jonah's life was still there. Maybe you're in a place where you're living in self-condemnation. That's the work of the enemy. Satan's the accuser of the brother, and he'll come to us and say, you are a loser, you've fallen short, God can't use your life. And you need to understand, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. When he hung upon the cross, he died for our sins so that we would have forgiveness, and the things of the past would no longer haunt us, but that we can get up because of his grace and his mercy and move forward in the things that God has called us to. God didn't say to Joshua, now you've blown it too bad. I'm not going to give you the land. He comes to him and says, nope, my promises are still true in your life. In verse 9, Joseph therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Joshua marches through the night to come and have the surprise upon this alliance of five kings. And there's a lesson here for us. Is Joshua does his best when it comes to God's call. He puts everything that he has into God's call. And God wants this from us. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it wholeheartedly unto the Lord. And sometimes we think that God's call just looks like working at a church or, or working at a nonprofit, at a, at a ministry. And those are obviously callings of God. But everything that we do, every different aspect of life is a calling of God. God tells us if you take a cup of cold water to a child in the name of being a disciple, he'll reward you. Even the smallest act of bringing a child a cup of water, we can go all out and do it in honor of the Lord. We can take out the trash in a way that honors God with an attitude that blesses the Lord. We can drive in a way that honors and blesses the Lord. Our whole life, we can give our whole being in doing our best unto the Lord. It's crazy. It's August. School's starting in a few weeks. High school students, college students, you're getting ready to go back, you know. Going back to college encompasses a whole bunch of, of age, ages. You can worship the Lord in the classroom by doing our best unto the Lord. And Joshua knew what he was called to, and he marches all night. And if you look at a map, you'll see that Gilgal to Gibeon is about 20 miles and 3,300 feet in elevation gain. Now, if you've climbed a 14er here in Colorado or done the incline on Pikes Peak in Manitou Springs, you know what that feels like. It doesn't feel very good to go up that elevation gain. If you've never done it, you can probably imagine, right? Like, why does anybody want to do that? I don't know. These guys are hiking, walking, at a tough pace in the middle of the night. 
They don't have their nice warrior night vision or their, you know, those things, those headlamps that you have when you're out in the wilderness at night. They're going forward and they're trudging through. And Joshua, he goes all out and following God's word and God's call. Verse 10, so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes from Beth Haran and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. Very clearly, Joshua did his best, but God was the one who brought the victory. And that's what the Lord desires. He wants our best, but our best is not enough. Agreed? And even our best is not going to bring about the victory. So we're to pour ourselves out, but then walk in faith and dependency that God's going to bring the victory. And clearly, God routes the enemy. And God sends the enemy to flee. And notice what the Lord does as the enemy is now fleeing in verse 11. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were, no more who, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Did you catch that? So they're fleeing from Israel And God gets involved, and he gets giant hailstones, starts throwing them from heaven. He's a great shot. Boom, he hits the enemy, and they fall down one by one. Now, here in Colorado, we know a little bit about hail, don't we? We get these crazy hailstorms where we get some large-sized hail. Sometimes it takes me back to last summer in June. Maybe you were here. It was a Wednesday night. But as long as I've lived in Colorado, it's the worst rain hailstorm that we've ever had. And it happened to be right on a Wednesday night. Now, if you've been here in the sanctuary when it rains, last night it was raining, you can really hear it on the roof. When it starts to hail, you can hear it even more. And it was so loud here in the sanctuary, you could hardly hear the word being taught over the speakers. But I was determined just to stay focused. And if I pretend like this isn't happening, maybe I'll get through the Bible study. And all of a sudden, there's water that starts coming through underneath these, these doors. If you've never been in this back alley, all the water from our roof plus the roofs behind us and the property behind us and the asphalt all comes to one drain. And that drain could not even begin to keep up with all the water. There was four or five feet of water in the alley about up to my waist. There was a car that was floating in the back alley. There was a small army of people here getting water out of the sanctuary. So anytime that I read of or think of hail, I think of that. And that's just absolutely free. I just had to share that and bring that memory back to you. I mean, the old side of the church, the children's ministry, the roof gave out in several places and there was water coming in. We had to turn off the electricity so nobody got electrocuted while they came to church. You know, that's a powerful service, you know, right there. (laughs) So you can imagine what this hail is like that's coming down that God is giving. But notice not one Israelite dies. God is able to pinpoint with absolute accuracy. Maybe he's up there and Bam, yeah. And then he just all and you're like, man, that seems kind of cruel that God would do that. I mean, basically he's stoning them to death with hailstones. Don't be on the wrong side of God. That's the only thing I've got to tell you, you know? It's a serious thing to be on the wrong side of God. And these people had many, many years, 400 years to repent. And God now is bringing down the enemies of God. He's doing it in such a way where they know it's the Lord, where God's the one who receives the glory. 
in verse 12, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel. I love this. We get a window inside of the relationship that Joshua has with God. It just says, Then Joshua spoke with the Lord. Like, it's real natural. Like, I, I called my wife. I talked to my dad. I called my best friend. I, I spoke with the Lord. It would have been easy for Joshua in the midst of all of the chaos and this great victory to just pursue the victory, to not take the time to speak to the Lord. And we don't get this idea that Joshua got on his knees, that he went and found a quiet place. In the middle of everything that's going on, he just begins to talk with the Lord and speak with the Lord. And Joshua seems to talk with the Lord in times of defeat, in times of hardship, times of direction, but also times of victory. And there are some times where Joshua didn't pray or he should have prayed, but here he cries out to the Lord and through his communion with God and talking with the Lord, the Lord must have revealed to him that God wanted to hold up the sun, to stop the sun, to stop the moon so that they could continue with this victory. And Joshua says this in front of all of Israel. Sun stands still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of the Hyjalon. That's boldness. That's confidence. I'm going to speak to the moon, speak to the sun, and stand still. Joshua's knowledge of God and who he believed God to be is magnificent. That God had the ability, the power, the strength to cause the sun and the moon to stand still. I mean, we think of I believe that nothing's impossible for the Lord. We may say that, we may sing that, but yet in our hearts and our minds, there's probably some limit to that where we go, I don't know if God could do this. Or I don't know if God could do this. But Joshua and his understanding of God knew that it was no big deal for God to stop to pause the, the sun and the moon. So verse 13, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasser? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and didn't hasten to go down for about a whole day. First, what's the book of Jasser? It's a historical Hebrew book that's not included for us in Scripture, but it was a place that they would write down their history. So the sun, the moon, it stands still for about a whole nother day, for a whole another 24 hours. These guys are up for a long time. They've already marched all night. And now they get an extension of 24 hours. So about 48 hours now that they're up as they're fighting this battle. Now, does it bother you or cause you conflict that God caused the sun and the moon to stand still? In talking with people, I find that there's certain sections of scripture that they either just don't believe or have a really hard time believing. Many times people will say, well, I don't, I don't really believe creation. Like that's just a little bit too much that God would just speak everything into existence. So I don't really buy into that part of, of scripture. And I heard you mention Jonah and him being swallowed in the belly of a great fish and living in the, that fish for three days and three nights and surviving and living. I just don't believe the Jonah part. And the Red Sea, it being parted, I don't believe that either. And this part here in Joshua where God causing the sun and the moon to stand still, I don't believe that either. And when we do that, we don't realize this when we do it, but when we do it, we're diminishing the glory of God. 
and we're putting him in a category that we can understand. And I know why this is difficult for us, because we know that the earth rotates around the sun, and the moon rotates around the earth, and the oceans and their tide are all connected to the moon, and if this just all stops, then how does everything else not go into chaos? But if we don't believe it, we've diminished God's glory. And think about it, through the intellect that we do have, if God has created the sun and moon, and he sustains the sun and the moon, every day keeps the whole cycle and system going, why is it such a big deal for him to put it on pause and cause everything else to function perfectly? The sun and the moon are actually very small pieces of his overall creation, and we know that now. We live in the Milky Way galaxy that's one of, we can't even count all of the other galaxies. We can't even begin to estimate the amount of stars that God has. And he knows them by name. So don't dismiss or diminish the power and the glory of God. But when we deny these things and we don't believe them, that's exactly what we do while we elevate our intellect. While we elevate ourselves and we make ourselves the judge of God. Not a good place to be in. He's the judge of us. And we stand in him and we awe that God has the power and the ability to do this. To cause the sun and the moon to stand still for a whole nother day. Have you had days like that where you go, Lord, I just need more time. You're doing good stuff here and there's a momentum. But many more days I'm like, Lord, I thank you that this day is done. I can't get to bed fast enough. Thank you for getting me through another day. Verse 14. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Underline, meditate upon the Lord heeded the voice of a man. We have every indication that this would have not happened if Joshua wouldn't have prayed. Now, God put it in the heart of Joshua, yes. But still, God wanted Joshua to pray. This happened through prayer. God heeded the voice of a man. I've been reading through Isaiah here in the last month, and this week I was in the portion of Isaiah where Hezekiah gets word from God that he's got no time to live. Put your house in order, you're going to die. That's not what you want to hear from the Lord in worship. You know, it's in worship this morning and the Lord told me, you're a dead man. You better get things ready. At least he had notice from God, right? To get everything ready, to kiss his grandkids, to hug his wife and his kids and those kind of things. Well, Hezekiah just bawls like a baby. I mean, he, he understandably, but he just freaks out and uh, crying out and all this stuff. And God says, okay, I'll give you 15 more years to live. And Hezekiah then says, well, how do I know that you've heard my prayer? And God says, well, the shadow, it goes this way, and it, you're, you're noticing the shadow of the day as the sun's beginning to set. I'm going to reverse the direction of the sun, and so that the shadow's going in the opposite direction. And there's two times in all of human history that God changes the course of the sun because of the prayers of people. And there's something there that the Lord's wanting to, us to get and understand. And it's this, that he's a lot more willing to hear and to respond to our prayers than we realize. And I've really been convicted of that this week as I've been looking at Hezekiah and looking at, at Joshua. And I'm in this men's Bible study on Friday mornings. We were talking about prayer this particular Friday morning. And in my own heart, I was convicted, Lord, I don't believe in prayer like I should that you hear my prayers and you're waiting and desiring to move 
as I come to you and draw near to you and bring this to you in prayer. So after the men's study Friday morning, is sitting in my car, feeling convicted and just confessing that to the Lord. The Lord knows that anyway. He knows my heart, that my heart isn't as strong as it should be and trusting and believing in prayer. And then there were some things on my heart in regards to my family and things that were going on. And I just very simply for a few moments lifted those up to the Lord And then by the time I left the men's Bible study and got back to my house on the Friday morning, my phone had rang and the Lord was beginning to answer those prayers. And that's not always how it happens for me. But the Lord did something special in my heart Friday morning to encourage me in this area of prayer. He's really waiting as our Father to hear from us. And there's certain things that He desires to do that won't happen and won't be done if we don't come to him in prayers. So I'm going to read two verses that talk to us about prayer. The first is James 4 verse 3. It says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you spend it on your own desires, your own pleasures. Don't get the wrong idea with prayer. God's not saying that he's this giant genie in the sky and if you come rub his belly, you get whatever you want. If you ask with the wrong motivation, if I ask with the wrong motivation so that we can just consume it on our lusts and our own pleasure, the answer is going to be no. God's not going to grant us those things. Jesus taught us to pray according to his will and his kingdom, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done as heaven as on earth. So maybe in your prayers you feel like, I'm not getting answers, or the answers are always no. Could it be that our prayers are geared off of our pleasures and our lusts instead of God's will and God's kingdom? And then John 16, verse 23, it says, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give you. Jesus is speaking to the disciples and saying, When you see me again, you'll have no questions. But while you're here on this earth, you can ask of the Father in my name, and he will give it to you. Until you now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy will be made full. Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us, pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And this isn't just putting the name of Jesus on anything that we want. This isn't like, oh, I'd love a million bucks in the name of Jesus. Pastor Eric told me to pray in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, I'm going to be a millionaire. You want me to prosper in the name of Jesus? If I started preaching that, look out, the church would grow, wouldn't it? We might even get on TV and beg people to send us a bunch of money in the name of Jesus. No, don't get nervous. We're not going to do that. (laughs) But that's not praying in the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter how many times you say his name. In in actuality, it's an abuse of his name. Because if you know somebody that has a godly character, their name, their reputation, can you put their name on a bank robbery? I robbed this bank in the name of this person. No, you can't because it doesn't line up with who they are. So to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray things according to his character and nature. But don't lose the truth of what Jesus said. If you pray in his name according to his character and nature, you receive what you ask for. Maybe not in our timing, but do we believe this? And that's what I was challenged with. As you go before the Lord and you pray for your family, as you lift up your own heart before the Lord and say, God, would you make me a more loving person? Guess what? That's in the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And you can know that he hears you and he's going to answer that prayer. When we come before the Lord and say, God, would you help me and my family, my friends, would you help us to grow in the knowledge of Christ? 
man, we know that he hears our prayers. And Jesus also instructed us for us to lift up our daily needs, daily bread, those financial struggles and difficulties. He wants to work in in those things and provide for our needs, not necessarily our wants, but to bring those things to the Lord. So as we pray according to who he is, we can have confidence that he hears us. God heeded the voice of a man in stopping the sun and the moon. In verse 15, then Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. Joshua has done several things here. He's believed God's word, that God was with him. He also did his best. He called upon God. Before we move on, please take note of this, is that God stands for us in our valleys of mistake. Maybe you've known this section of scripture for a long time. The reason that the sun and the moon stood still and Joshua was in this valley is because they'd made a mistake. And God didn't forsake Joshua and Israel. As they owned their mistakes and relied upon the Lord, God brought about a wonderful victory. From verse 16 to verse 27, give us a little bit more detail of what happened in this extended day in verse 16. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. Those are the kind of leaders you want, right? While the battle's being fought, what are they doing? Let's find a good place to hide. Maybe all of our guys will get killed, but we're going to live through this. So they're found out in this cave in verse 18. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hands. Joshua shows great wisdom in not wasting this time that God has given. It would have been so easy to say, we've got the five kings, let's stop and deal with them right now. But they would have lost the momentum they had with the fleeing enemy. So he says, look, put the kings in the cave, roll the stone across it, put a few guards there. We're going to take the rest of the troops and we're going to pursue the enemy that's fleeing. And in following what God has for us, we have to learn how to prioritize and know when to set something aside and come back to it and pursue the thing that God has for us at that moment. And we get so overwhelmed with all the things that we're supposed to do. Does this ever happen to you where you sit down to spend some time in God's word and pray and all of a sudden you think of all of the things that you need to get done? It inevitably happens to me. Or you get a text. You can have not had a text or a phone call all day long, but you spend some time in prayer, ding, on your phone. And I don't know what it is about texts. I can let the phone just ring and ring and ring and go to voicemail, but you get a text and it's like, (laughs) you know, so hard to just let it alone. So that's a distraction, isn't it? That's a king that's coming in saying, you've got to deal with me right now. So put the phone on do not disturb. Put it in another room if if you have to and say, I've got to prioritize. Make some time to be with the Lord. Maybe God's put on your heart that this is something he wants you to do. There's going to be all these distractions that come in. So this is what I do. If I'm 
or try to do if I'm sitting down to spend time in the word is to just get a notepad and someone shared this with me and it's worked really well and those things come into my heart and my mind I'll just write it down on a notepad because then I'll remember to come back to it and it's my way of putting the king in the cave and putting a guard in front of it but then I'm going to come back to it but the principle here is Joshua knew his priority and he's going to come back and deal with these kings verse 20 Then it happened when Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. God moves in such a way that the enemies of God are silenced. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to them from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with them, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded that they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they'd been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remains until this very day. Joshua encourages the captains to deal with these kings, to kill these kings. Saul, we fast forward in the Old Testament And he spared King Agag of the Amalekites. And because of that, he was disqualified as a king. This shows total and complete obedience that God desires in our lives. It would have been easy just to allow these kings to live. And I know that this is difficult to read. It's severe. We look at the judgment of God. But you have to remember that these nations did have 400 years to repent and to get right with the Lord. As they saw things happening at the Jordan, at Jericho, at Ai, they could have come in repentance and faith in the one true and living God. I think there's some important truths for us to meditate upon this morning. And the first is this, is this text declares the glory and the majesty of God. Aren't you thankful that God is greater than us? That his ways are not our ways? Heaven is his throne and The earth is his footstool. Where do you put your feet to rest your feet? It's not a very grand place. And this earth isn't very grand compared to God's throne. It's wonderful to us. But when we see his throne in heaven, we're going to go, oh, this this is amazing. And don't minimize God's power and his creation that he just stretched forth the heavens like a curtain. It's completely within his ability just to put the sun and the moon on pause. Also, we see about God's character that he's faithful when we're faithless, that he'll stand and bring about a victory even when we make mistakes. So be encouraged. May we own up to our mistakes. May we stop that sin train, allow our mistakes to work for us and that we're learning from our mistakes and call upon the Lord and watch God do the impossible. I'm encouraged by that. Are you guys encouraged by that? God's faithful when we're faithless. And then there's this encouragement to venture out in prayer. Venture out in prayer. Jesus said to the disciples up until this point, 
You've never prayed anything in my name. And look at who Jesus is and what was important to Jesus and his character and nature and begin to pray things that line up with his kingdom and his character and nature. And may we believe it. God, you, you hear. You said in your word, if we pray according to your name, that you'll grant us those things because you desire to do those things for your kingdom and, and for your glory. So there's a work that God wants to do in our lives and there's a work that God wants to do in our church as we seek the Lord in prayer. So let's stand together and let's do just that. Let's pray.